Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the 12th, 2021, and this is episode 2803 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, today we're going to do a listener questions and answers show since I kind of preempted yesterday into talking about what to do about the big tech purge, uh, canceling of websites and things like that. That was so topical that it needed to be done, so we'll move to Q&A show today. Uh, I'm going to lead off with a great quote by uh, my late dear friend, Toby Hemingway, and I'm going to just... I haven't really talked about Toby much since he passed away, uh, other than right after it, to recommend that maybe you pick up some of his books and things like that and, and as, a, as a fitting tribute and uh, when people pass away, we tend to remember them but not talk about them. And as I've been adding content to my library channel, I started thinking, man, I know a great presentation by Toby, which I'll talk about later in the show. But that's where this quote comes from. And it's a bit of a paraphrase, but uh, trust me, uh, it's what he meant completely. Um, then I am going to talk a little bit more about my feedback on my decision to continue to sell as an Amazon affiliate and uh, some points people made to me that I think are valid, and I'm going to say most of it was very, very positive. I had two really, really negative uh, statement uh, things thrown at me for saying I was going to do that, calling me inconsistent or whatever, and I, I have a feeling both of those are long-time haters because I don't know either one of them by name. They're probably using fake emails or something, and they probably only... There's people, when you're successful, they exist to hate you, so screw them. Anyway, I got a question on olive oil. Is it bad for you to cook with olive oil? I'm going to say no, and no, and then, well, maybe. And I'll explain more in a bit. Uh, some help for somebody having trouble germinating seeds, specifically using the rapid rooter plugs, uh, and how to have the talk with, not your kids, your spouse, about walking to freedom. Yeah, so we're going to talk about that. Um, how to restore the soil in your lawn. It's not really that hard, and the person asking questions is overthinking just a bit, but I'd rather a person overthink than underthink, so that's fine. Um, the guy who really created the Internet, the guy that actually, not Al Gore, the guy that actually created the World Wide Web as we know it, he's not happy with the current version, so he's building a new one. Uh, I alluded to this in my talk yesterday. I've alluded to it several times, and he's not the only one doing things like this. But I have faith in the market. And as long as there's enough freedom for people to innovate, there will always be a solution to everything that's done that's wrong. That doesn't mean that everybody in the market will do good. That's exactly the opposite of what it means. It just means that since we operate on self-interest, and some people want things that are good and right, there will always be opportunity for people to innovate in that direction. And that because of that, somebody will. Somebody will. Next, um, I'm going to tell a little bit more about why I want you to join me on Odyssey. I'll mention the Toby Hemingway presentation, the quote comes from, and a few other videos that I've uploaded just in the past day. I am really trying to build an archive of stuff on Odyssey, not just of my own, but things that I, I think are in danger long-term of disappearing from the Internet. Uh, specifically when it comes to permaculture, regenerative agriculture, things like that right now, I'm making sure that stuff gets over first, and I'll probably do some other things down the road. 
Um, then I have a, a guy asked me about a quote from my past that I've said about pistols versus rifles, and uh, I'll talk about exactly what I meant by that. Uh, this is not the way I phrased it, but people have phrased it as the purpose of a pistol is to fight your way back to your rifle. It's why I came up with my own version of the quote to be a little more clear, but I'm going to talk about what that actually means. And then a question on yeast for mead making. Can it be sustainable? I, in, in this case, the person means, can you make it where you don't have to buy anymore? You don't have to keep buying yeast to make your mead. Can you, can you repitch your yeast? The answer is yes, and you should, but maybe not all the time. We will talk about all of that and more in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and talk about our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is BulkAmmo.com. Bulk Ammo is awesome. It is the place to get your ammo in bulk, just like it says, at BulkAmmo.com. What you'll notice is whenever people start freaking out about gun control, the ammo dries up faster than the weapons. And that's because most people that are weapons enthusiasts have eh, more than a few of them. And unlike ammo, once you use a gun, you can just keep using it over and over and over again. In spite of what the bean-headed uh, politician from Chicago thought years ago, you can do the same thing with magazines. You don't throw away your high-capacity magazine once it's empty. Morons. They, these people shouldn't be making laws, but they do. And because of that, people buy up ammo quickly. Check out Bulk Ammo to get the ammo that you need today in bulk at BulkAmmo.com. Next up today, I have been recommending... 5% to 10% of your net wealth in precious metal since 2008 when I first started this show. I, I think that ratio probably was spoken by at the latest July of 2008, and I started on June 20th. So it's that long I've been recommending that. The thing about it is, where are you going to get it? Well, if you're going to buy it online, because I understand buying local, totally, right? But if you're going to buy silver or gold online, you want to buy from a company that gives you the best price, the best service, You want free shipping, and you want a company that if something goes wrong, they'll make it right. Because the other side of it is, it's silver. If you buy a U.S. Silver Eagle, it's a freaking U.S. Silver Eagle. doesn't matter who you get it from. It's like buying a Wilson basketball. If you get it from Target or Walmart, it's the same ball. That's the whole point of a refined silver or gold product. Well, the company that has a president who will answer my emails personally if you ever have a problem is Jam Bullion. The company with kind of the best pricing out there, better than the huge places like Monix and Atmex, is Jam Bullion. The place with free shipping is Jam Bullion. The place that will give you a discount if you're an MSB member is Jam Bullion. And the, and the company that supported this show now for over 10 years is Jam Bullion. So why go anywhere else for your silver and gold needs? With that, I have a, a special little segment here before I give you our quote of the day. And uh, this is one I think you're really going to enjoy. And one of you out there is really going to have a special moment right now. I'm not kidding. Hold on. So I received a couple days ago, and I'm just now getting to where I'm doing this on air, and that's why it's not done yet, because I didn't want uh, foreknowledge by Mr. Matthew. I'm not going to use last names here. Because um, your, your kid's pretty awesome. Your kid, Peter. So if you're listening, you know who this is. So I have this... Uh, Membership application. I got a little note from mom that tells me it's okay to read this on the air as is. I'm still going to uh, omit the last names because I'm pretty sure Matt will know that his son Peter did this for him. Dear, And this came on the 28th of December was when it was written. We got it, I think, this weekend, so that's why it's not happening till now. Dear Mr. Spierko, uh, first of all, Peter, you can call me Jack. It's okay. My name is Peter, and I'm eight years old. I have three brothers, and we are homeschooled. We live on a small farmstead 
in Iowa, I think it's Iowa, IA, so it looks like, and try to raise our own food. We have, um, we have, a, can't read that word, but I think it's uh, geese, ducks, chickens, guineas, and uh, hogs, dogs, and cats, and we used to uh, have meat rabbits. We want to get a goat next. I have a side hustle. This is an eight-year-old kid, not the dad. I have a side hustle where I raise chicks and incubators and also sell eggs. My dad has been listening to your podcast for a few years now. I don't think he has missed an episode. My mom listens too. We have all learned so much from you. We wanted to get my dad a TSP membership for Christmas this year. He does so much for our family and hardly anything for himself except brewing beer. He does does do that. I wanted to know if you could read my letter sometime on your podcast for my dad to hear as a surprise so he would feel extra special and know that we got him a TSP membership. Thanks. His name is Matthew. We want him to know how much we love him. Thank you, Peter. That's, uh, that's pretty awesome. And I'll say this, Matthew, when it comes to raising kids, dude, you're doing it right. And I've uh, received an awful lot of emails and letters and things like that over the years, but um, that's one of the more special ones. So I, I thought I would share that on the air. And uh, I will set up your membership for you uh, this later this afternoon after the show goes live because the system will notify you at the email address they included. So I wanted to make sure that possibly anyway you heard it on the air first when you found out. So with that, let's dig in with our quote of the day today. Um, I'll save some deeper thoughts on this for when I do my segment on Odyssey. Uh, but <clears throat> last night I, I uploaded an incredible presentation called Redesigning Civilization with Permaculture by Toby Hemingway. And Toby eventually, like many people in the permaculture world, gravitated toward eventually kind of crossed over into the full-on world of the scary, scary word anarchism. Uh, because the more he examined things, the more he understood the control of the state. And it was one of those moments like when the first time I ever heard this from him, not this whole presentation, this was preceded. First time I ever heard that from him was that Permaculture Voices 2. And I'm like, oh my God, he sounds like an anarchist. And I'm like, he's going to say it. Next thing, a giant A, you know, the anarchist symbol popped up on the screen with this slideshow. And I was like, wow, that's really awesome. And Toby had become a dear, dear friend by then. We had... Uh, a lot of breakfasts together out in California at uh, both Permaculture Voices 1 and 2. And he was just an amazing man. And in this presentation, again, for brevity so it would fit on the picture, I kind of shortened it. But he said, agriculture has led to the domestication of human beings. My dog is more wild than I am. And Toby makes an incredibly compelling case for this. He explains deeply the evolution of what we call civilization and the contrast between the hunter-gatherer and horticultural uh, peoples that are supposedly uncivilized versus we who are so civilized and how our civilization can only come from agriculture. And he explains very deeply the difference between agriculture and horticulture, the culture of fields versus the culture of plants. Um it's, it's an amazing video, and I'll say more about it uh, when I get to my segment about Odyssey. But again, agriculture has led to the domestication of human beings. My dog is more wild than I am. 
And I think that on a larger thing, the reason I wanted to bring this quote up today is that's exactly what's being done to you right now. We've been domesticated for 10,000 years, but domestication is an ongoing process. And this, I mean, literally muzzling people, silencing them, making them fear to speak, locking them in their homes, censoring their speech, closing down communications, requiring conformity, is domestication. When you're domesticating something like a dog and you're trying to create a specific breed, What do you do when you have traits that are undesirable? You don't breed that dog anymore. right? If it's a chicken, you kill it. And you only breed the ones that you want to replace the genetics of. That's part of the domestication process. And you use food and shelter right, and confinement to further your domestication so that the animal sees you as its god. And I know that sounds crazy to some people, but think about it. Every morning, the giant comes. He opens the house, and we go out. Without the giant, the scary things that run in and around the woods would get us. He commands the wolf that protects us. That's a dog, right? He brings us food and water. And occasionally, he takes one of us away. He is the almighty God giant. That's how your animals view you, because they're domesticated. You tell me that's not being what's done to the human being. All right, next up, on the whole purge, I said yesterday that I wasn't going to make an irrational, knee-jerk decision about Amazon and that it was a significant part of my business model at this point. Having now run T-SPAS for four years, it's become incredibly integral into my business, and I can't just walk away from it. And that I'm sorry that if some of you just don't want to use Amazon anymore, I respect that and I understand that. I expect that my income will decline from TSPAS because some of you just, it won't be whether you care or not that I'm doing it. You just will choose not. I totally get it. And I totally respect it. I got a lot of emails. Here was one of the most animated one, and it was pro my decision. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to censor one word here. I'm going to change it to F, right? Jack, don't you effing stop selling through Amazon. Don't feel guilty about it either. Anybody that, uh, from now on, I'm really going to make an effort to buy through T-SPAS every time I buy something. Keep using their shit to F them up as long as possible. I feel now is more important than ever to support those who speak out against the madness. You've been doing it for a long time. Thank you, John. Uh, appreciate it, John. And I got quite a few other emails. Some were like basically, hey, you know, people have to make a living and all. There were several that were echoing John's sentiment of basically you're getting a piece of their business. And most of the people that buy through your link would buy something on Amazon anyway. All you would do is not get the piece. So they get all of it instead of some of it. And additionally, you'd use that revenue to continue your message and teach people how to deal with all this shit that's coming from the technocracy. And, and I think that's valid, you know. The other thing that I got from a bunch of people, and I, I can't believe I never thought about this because I've, I've said this before myself, basically saying, think of how many people benefit who are not Amazon from Amazon. How many people sell products, and Amazon is the primary way that they get their, their money. And so how many Americans have businesses that either are they're producing and selling on Amazon, or even if they're importing, they're the ones doing everything. They've done the design and all, and they just literally tens of thousands of small businesses that Amazon's their storefront. And, and I, I agree, that's, that's, that's a valid point as well. I still don't like it. 
I don't like that they were so directly involved with taking down Parler. And my goal long term is to come up with more alternatives. But for now, this is, it, it, again, it is an in, integral part of, of my business at this point. It is a, it is a key component of my revenue. It is, it is why, for instance, I've been able to run so many sales and cut my price on MSB. You know, when I, when I do an MSB sale and I do like 30 bucks a year for life, that every single unit of that is 20, you know, I'll sell more that way. But at some point you reach a cannibalization point where every single person is $20 less a month and it adds up over, you know, hundreds of memberships. In, in, into you know what is a, basically a, a loss of, of, of potential revenue, and so I've never tried to make as much money as I possibly can with this show. I've tried to make enough money that I don't have to worry about anything, so I can do my best job for you. And and the Amazon programs enabled that. The last thing, and I got this from two people, and I thought this was a pretty valid point as well. They said, "Do you think John Mays, who's the founder of Parler, had Parler nuked?" a competitor of his, even if he hated it, even if he thought it was wrong. Let's say he knew that MeWe got nuked by Amazon website. Do you think he would have shut down Parler? And my answer is no, I don't. I don't think he would have shut down Parler. And I think that maybe he would have started looking for an alternative before he needed one, and that's kind of what I'm going to do now. So I, again, I, I hope that real heartfelt hope that all of you out there understand that there's decisions sometimes you have to make that are not the best. I did have a couple people call me a sellout and a shill and shill. I, I don't, I don't have time for your shit really, especially if I don't even know you, right? I've been doing this for 13 years and I don't even know you. And all of a sudden you're outraged by something you're, you, you you've never shown up before and now you're outraged. I, I, it's it, it, the people that have been loyal supporters of the show that don't like it. I would hear your voice and understand it, even if I would disagree with my final decision, and I respect it. People just mouthing the mouth. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. Those of you that do that, I'm surprised you listen at all. Like, listen to someone you hate. But one thing you need to know is your ability to affect my mood uh, in any real meaningful way or my attitude or anything else, like... I've been immune to that for a very long time. When you do this type of business for a long time, I might get animated and yell and stuff because it's somewhat entertaining and theatrical. Sometimes it is passion when I'm angry at the world. But when it comes to um, responding to people like this, you mean nothing to me. You mean nothing. I got a guy emailed me some shit about Parler, and he, I told you so or something. I, did, I, I don't even know what his deal was, but he was on and on, and I, I responded with, you're about a, I don't know who you are, and this conversation that happened two years ago or whatever, but you're about as memorable as the crap I took like from two years ago. And, and that's legit, legitimately how I feel, right? So anyway, I hope you understand, those of you who are supporters and followers of the show, that sometimes you have to make a decision for your business that may not be the one you most want to make. Next up today, I had a question about cooking with olive oil. And um, apparently there's now... A complete myth running around, rampant, trying to stare people, probably to sell some sort of informational product through spam emails, uh, that, that all of a sudden olive oil will kill you if you cook with it. James asks me, is cooking with olive oil bad for your health? I know. Hi, Jack. When not keto, I've been roasting potatoes for years using olive oil. 
I know people often don't like the taste, but I've grown accustomed to it, and I really like it. I don't deep fry in any food. However, a small amount of olive oil in a non-skick stillet, am I harming my health in how I use olive oil in these ways? Uh, I don't believe so, but I do want to maybe put some caution out there. First, I want to start out with what is olive oil and what isn't olive oil? And what do the different types of olive oils mean? And what are their, what we call smoke points? Points at which the oil will begin to actually burn and change and turn into smoke and become bitter and taste like ass. Uh, extra virgin, depending on exactly what kind of olives, etc., will have a smoke point between 375 and 405. Um, and I have never seen olive oil, extra virgin olive oil that would go up to 405. And I don't think you should be cooking with extra virgin olive oil anyway. It has too much flavor and character, and it should be used uncooked, like on food at the end. And even if it's like something like with potatoes and you like the flavor, then you would cook the potatoes and you would drizzle the olive oil on at the end because we don't want to... Basically, you're... Okay, so if you, if you had the finest Russian caviar, you wouldn't mix it with mayonnaise. All right? You see what I'm saying? Okay, if you want to put ketchup on a piece of beef, that's one thing. You wouldn't put it on an aged ribeye, all right? You don't use extra virgin olive oil to cook with. Then you have virgin. So extra virgin is the first gentle press of the olives. That's where it comes from. Then you have virgin. And virgin's generally considered it will handle heat up to 390 degrees. They have no problem with people cooking with virgin olive oil. Uh, it's, it's kind of a low-cost alternative. And because it's the second press, it doesn't have quite the flavor. 390 degrees is considered the smoke point. And uh, then you have what's called pure. Pure is, it's the second press plus. It's where there's certain chemical extraction used to get all the, I want all the oil from the olives. So we've wrung them dry. And because it's a little more refined due to that, and has a little less of additional things that give you all those wonderful flavors olive oil has. It has a smoke point around 410-ish degrees. All of those are fine. I generally, when I use olive oil, I don't want to go over about 375 degree temperature of the oil. So I'm probably not going to roast potatoes at 425 using olive oil. I would rather use bacon fat or something or chicken fat for something like that. I'm going to get to whether it's health issue or not, but... Smoking olive oil is not good flavor, period, okay? Now, when you roast potatoes, it actually is seldom the case that just because the oven's set on 425 that the potato itself, the external part of it, and the olive oil on it will hit all the way to 425. So you could probably still do it. And if you're roasting at lower temperatures in the neighborhood of 400 degrees, then anything from the olive family should be fine, even though, again, I wouldn't do it with extra virgin. Because uh, you're going to be a few degrees at least lower on the surface temperature than the oven temperature in general with your cooking. Now, the last one, again, is light. This is my opinion of light olive oil. Don't use it. It's garbage. has nothing to do with your question directly. Uh, it has a smoke point of 470 degrees because it's not olive oil. It's basically pure olive oil, which is chemically extracted olive oil, combined with other quote-unquote refined oils, which are unspecified. And I think it's 51%. It might be 60%. But as long as you meet a certain percentage of the oil that's a majority from olive, you can call it light olive oil without even telling people necessarily what the other oil is. 
So don't use that shit because it's probably canola or cottonseed or some other garbage-ass oil that you don't want in your body. All right, now, health. I can find no conclusive evidence at all that cooking olive oil to the point of the smoke point makes anything bad for your health. But, of course, I can't find anybody that actually really, actually, really, really tried. I see people trying to defend olive oil running their own studies. So my view is when we really burn something, when we smoke oil, we're burning it. You're chemically altering it. And it has been shown over and over again that process generally produces some level of carcinogen. You're probably breathing more carcinogen taking a walk in the woods than from olive oil that got slightly over its smoke point. So I wouldn't really heavily worry about this. But if there's any any condition to worry about is getting it too hot. But as a cook who does not like to see food disgraced and who doesn't believe that we should treat food poorly, I don't want olive oil reaching a smoke point because it's just not tasty. So what I recommend is that you kind of keep things in check. I don't do this a lot because I've gotten to where I can kind of tell by the look of oil that it's hot enough to cook with, and I'm pretty good at controlling my temperatures, and I have a gas stove, which makes everything so much easier because if you feel you're getting just a little bit too hot, it, you, you lower the flame, it immediately drops down, and you can always just pick that pan up and come over, you know, hover over a little higher up. You have so much control. If you want a little more knowledge of your temperature, get the E-Tech City, available on Amazon.com and T-Spaz, get the E-Tech City uh, laser uh, thermal gun. They're like 20 bucks, and there's a million things that thing does, but testing the temperature of your pan uh, is a, a really great one. Next up... Um, I have a question from Mark. Mark says, I'm using the CZ net pots and net tray to try to start seeds. I added water to the grow tray and put three plugs and three net pots. The seeds I used were tomato, pepper, and cilantro. I added water to the grow tray. This didn't germinate, so I tried again with the same seeds. This time I soaked the plugs and added the seeds but have not filled any water in the grow tray yet. I was thinking maybe it's too much water preventing germination, similar to too much water in seed starter soil. Only thing I haven't tried yet is a heating pad, though the room they are in isn't cold at all. Thanks. Okay, let's start off with the room isn't cold. If you got one of those little E-Tech City laser guns that I just talked about, I'm sure a nifty thing to check things with, and you uh, shot the top of a moist uh, piece of sponge, which is basically what a rapid rooter plug is, in a room that was, let's say, 68, 69 degrees, you might find that the temperature of the top of that little gizmo is like in the 50s. And seeds aren't real responsive at 50 degrees germination. You can actually look up germination rates for different seed types, and you'll find that as temperature goes down, the days to germinate go up, 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 and up. All right, so that could be part of your problem in a a, a, a condensation dome. So something as simple as a, a a clear plastic lid over the top might be a good way to get that to go. And seeds, in general, most and none of the ones you have there need light to germinate. So often seeds will germinate a little quicker if it's actually dark and you're not exposing them to light. Not all, but some of the peppers of the seeds that you mention here. The most problematic for me in my life seed to get to germinate has been cilantro. And the only way I've gotten cilantro to reliably germinate is the same thing I'm going to suggest you might end up doing for these other seeds, if you still have problems after our conversation here, is to take them and to soak them 
overnight, then to drain them and put them in a damp piece of paper towel, fold it over, put that piece of paper towel into a Ziploc bag, and put that into kind of a warmish place. And a warmish place without using a heating pad or anything, if you have a TV, and most people do, and you have a cable box, right up on top of the cable box has been my place. I've done this with spinach, too. I've had a hard time germinating spinach in the, in the, uh, the winter, especially, which is when I grow it. So any seed that you're having problem with, try that. Tomatoes, I have never had a variety of tomato, but that doesn't mean there aren't any, where I needed to do anything other than stick them in a rapid rooter plug, even if that rapid rooter plug was you know, kind of touching bottom in water, and directly start them, but I always start my seeds either in my mini greenhouse or with a, a dome over them because my germination rates are just so much better with that. Peppers, the same, but last year I tried four different varieties of peppers, and one was just plain old jalapeno M to diversify my genetics of, of my own Jack's jalapenos, which are based on that variety. And I thought I got bad seed because I put Marconi pepper and uh, Cubanelle and one other I can't remember right now off the top of my head in my same system. And, like, you have a roll of, row of the Marconis, a row of the jalapenos, Plobanos, a roll of Plobanos, and all of them started except the jalapenos. And I had bought a pretty big pack of seed because I was going to do some broadcasting and stuff like that outside, just let volunteers do what they do. And I was, like, pissed at any seed who I bought them from. And I was going to, like, write him an angry letter or whatever. And I thought, wait a minute. You've seen this before. So I took a handful of them, like, you know, a couple dozen, and I put them on the paper towel. I didn't soak them because you don't really need to soak a, pe uh, a pepper seed. And I put them on the damp towel, put them in a thing, threw them on top of the cable box, and three days later they all had rootlets, all of them, 100%. So that may, whenever you have trouble with germination, that may be the case. Now, this is my caution if you employ this method. They'll put out a little rootlet, and that's when to go ahead and get them in there. And you want to do it as quick as possible. If you forget about them and leave them like an extra day, and some seeds will root almost immediately, like it'll be the next day, some will take a day or two. You're going to keep watching them, and as they, as, as soon as they stick out the tiniest little rootlet, if you're using the rapid rooter plugs or if you're using any media for hydro or aquaponics, get them in there now, right away. Because as that rootlet gets longer, you'll damage it and break it off, and it'll be all sad. And especially with seeds like cilantro, peppers, tomatoes, when that rootlet's starting to just stick out, put it rootlet down and, and use like a pencil or with the eraser side or a toothpick or something and gently as possible push it all the way into the hole of that rapid rooter plug. And it wouldn't hurt. What I do with my rapid rooter plugs, and if they don't seem to have a deep enough or well-formed well enough hole for the rapid rooter plugs, take the... An unused, because it's nice and squared and round, then it's about the perfect diameter, pencil with the eraser side and shove it in there and kind of turn it back and forth like you're kind of wallering it out with the little metal piece on the outside of the eraser. And, and it could be as deep as, you know, one-third the depth. Because what I found is a lot of times my, my com complaint with rapid rooter plugs is with some of them what they'll do is they have what you call push-outs where the root will literally push the seed out And so it's not a really nice anchoring to the plug now. So by going deep, and then maybe don't push the seed all the way to the bottom of that hole you've made. Leave another, you know, three-eighths, quarter of an inch from the bottom of that hole you made because it's going to kind of seal back up. And if you do that, that rootlet will start to grow down, 
and it will embed itself before the top starts to come out, and you'll get less push-outs that way. So kind of an extra little feedback there. So definitely try getting a dome over it. Definitely make sure it's warm enough. And if you still have germination problems, use the paper towel trick with plastic bag. I did that a long time ago in a video. I probably should do it again. Next up, Matthew says, how to talk to your spouse or significant other about moving to a freedom-loving place. We are in the process of walking away from tyranny in Massachusetts. My wife would like to stay home in the Northeast. However, I'm looking at freedoms being taken away in all states up here and unaffordability of any property. I'm becoming worried that it is going to get much worse. How do I talk to her? How do I talk her into moving to a place we both may not want, but would be the safest for our family? We both hate heat, but Texas may be the last place we could go. Uh, thanks, Matt. Texas is a good place, and it is hot, and that's a consideration. Just like moving to New Hampshire is a consideration, because, I mean, of all the states in the Northeast, that's where I would look. And if you have to stay in the Northeast, I would consider... New Hampshire and get hooking up with the Free State Project, right? That's not really answering your question, but I'm just saying if you had to stay in the Northeast, I would look there too. The states that Dorothy and I have had conversations about where if we move from Texas, there are two states we would look hard at. I'm not saying there aren't any others, but there's two that we would definitely consider, and those are Florida and Tennessee. And I think those are three great states to look at. Tennessee has kind of a balance. It does get hot in Tennessee, but it doesn't get as hot as Texas. You still have four seasons, et cetera. And Tennessee is a very diverse state. Um, if you look up in kind of the northeast end, you know, Knoxville and northeast of there, it's very similar climate to West Virginia, western Pennsylvania. Uh, if you get down into kind of the center part of the state, Nashville, it's a little bit more temperate. And if you get down more toward the Memphis area, it's more plain. So there's a lot of diversity in Tennessee. And we have awesome people. We have one of the biggest contingents of freedom-loving people I know of in the TSB audience in Tennessee. right? And so Tennessee has no, no state tax, so that's good too. So that would be like the state that might be the compromised state. Now, how do you have this conversation? Well, you need to have this conversation with each other. You need to have this conversation open understanding. And what I would do is let's take moving away or moving to a place or leaving a place off the table for the initial discussion. And let's start out making a list of things that we want and that we don't want. And a lot of times it's hard to know what we really want. And I want to be here is not in the spirit of this discussion. So we can even put that on the list because that's all want. Because we're going to give up some wants and deal with some don't wants anyway in this. But we really need to dig deeper than that. What do you really want? How much land? What kind of climate? What kind of school system for children? Are you going to homeschool? Well, then you want a place that's friendly to that. If you're going to put kids in the school system, any even though Jack says not to, because you do what you want. They're your kids, right? Then we want a school system that is more in keeping with what we're looking for. How much do you, we probably want a reasonable price? We probably want low property taxes. We probably want low or no state income tax. We probably want lack of regulation. You just keep building that list. And if you get stuck, then you go to what we don't want because it'll lead directly to what you do want. You know, Just look at all the reasons you want to move in the first place. That'll be a pretty good start at what you don't want. And then when you do that, then start looking at places and comparing them to the lists. This is the conversation I would have. Why don't we do this exercise? Understanding that if 
if we start looking at this and we both say, hey, Northwest Georgia is a candidate. It doesn't mean that we've decided. we. Because what happens is when you start having this discussion and somebody gets excited about a place and the other person's not sold on it yet, they start feeling like they're being pushed to make this decision that they don't really want to make or they're not ready to make yet. They haven't fully taken it in. So let's make it where we can both have an opinion that something's a good idea and no one else is going to get mad about that. No one's going to be like, oh, it's... You know, you know, I don't want to do it and just close their and blah, 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 put their fingers in ears. Because that's what happens with couples more than anybody else in these discussions. You know, people just throw their, I don't like that, whatever. Just, if you can put that aside. And you have to do something that's very difficult here then, Matt. You have to not have an agenda in this other than finding a place that's great for both of you. So you can't be trying, because since you've taken control of the conversation at the beginning with that, you have to honor your own thing you've had. The thing, same thing you asked her to do, you have to do. And you have to be as open to, you know, you're in, I think you said Massachusetts. So like finding a place in the Massachusetts mountains, you have to be as open to that as you want her to be as open to maybe finding a place in the Tennessee mountains or the West Virginia mountains or what have you. And it's hard to do. It's counter to our nature. But if you want her to do it, you got to do it first. And maybe even let her listen to this segment. Because you might explain it wrong. <laughs> and I explain things for a living. And I don't mean that in an arrogant way. I just, I do. And you're also in the point of, <laughs> there's a meme, and I don't know where it comes from, but like one guy's sitting down and the other person like hands him a plate of food. And in the next scene, he throws the plate of food down the hallway And somebody took that picture from that movie, and it was like the the guy sitting down was a wife, right? Even though he's a guy, and the guy handing it to it was husbands, and the plate said husbands' opinion, right? And then it goes down the hallway, and then they took the the, the one from Elf, where Will Ferrell's like eating the like spaghetti with the marshmallows and chocolate on it, and it's it's like opinion of a stranger, and and I think there is some of that, and it goes it's not a male female thing, it goes both directions. That when you are talking to your spouse and you know your spouse, so you know what your spouse wants, you and it's a, a touchy subject like this, you start to take everything they say as trying to sell you, and sometimes it is. So the way that you make this determination is again, it has to be right for both parties, and you have to you have to take the emotion out at first and really consider it, and then you have to sleep on it, and you can't be pressing for an answer. You can't be pressing for an answer. You have to be like, think about it. And then shut your effing mouth, dude. I mean, that's so hard for us to do as men. They say women talk too much, and they probably do, but men talk when they shouldn't, especially to their wives. We don't talk when we should, and we talk when we shouldn't. That's just a fundamental weakness the male of the species has as human beings. So you have the con you ask to have the conversation. You ask permission to have the conversation. Like this. And then you sit down together and you work on it. And you get a piece of paper and you make a line, pro and con, or what we want, what we don't want. And you, you make that list and then start researching things. And if you come up with an area that seems like maybe that's a good thing, then start property shopping virtually. You know, go to real estate websites and start looking it up and start looking at the land and start realizing what can we get for our money and what does this look like and what is, and you know, work environment, all of that matters. So that's. That's the best I can do it. That's a Dr. Phil level one there. Uh, next up, Daniel says, what would be the best permaculture practice to restore lawn soil? 
I live in northeast Ohio, and my lawn, as well as most of the lawns in the neighborhood, became waterlogged much of the year, uh, due to, and then bone dry the rest. Water drainage issues, swampy portion of lawn, well into spring, leaky basements, weeds, patchy lawn, poor lawn growth seems to be common problems. As we learn more about regenerative agriculture and restoring soil, I wonder if these problems are the same that farmers are facing. Yeah, and not as bad, though. I'll explain that in a second. The soil isn't absorbing and using the water. Fertilizer is only papering over nutrient problems. How do I best apply the principles to restore the lawn as well as the garden? I worry if I did find enough space to spread compost and not kill grass, it would probably wash away like the chemical fertilizers. Do I do it in parts? and deep layer of compost, tarp it to minimize the weeds and reseed with good grass, or is there something that I should cover crop in the spring, midsummer, or should chop and drop and plant seed? Um, I would not try to redo your lawn by tarping it and reseeding. I would work with what you have. I have an article in the show notes today called The Organic Lazy Man's Way or something like that. Uh, Organic Lawn Care for the Cheap and Lazy by Paul Wheaton. And a lot of it is just setting your lawn mower higher. Stop using chemical fertilizers altogether. Yes, possibly use some compost uh, as well. And uh, he goes on with some other things. You can also look up, and I'll try to find it for you if I don't forget to add it to the show notes, and I should have in the beginning, Howard Garrett's lawn care stuff, which is going to involve using some rock minerals and molasses and spraying with uh, Garrett juice. Uh, that that would be working, combining the two together. And, and Paul and, and Howard are going to agree a lot on setting your lawnmower to the highest level uh, and raking out some of the thatch at times is another thing that you can do. As far as adding compost, you don't have to worry that you're going to add compost and kill your grass. I defy you to kill your grass with compost. I dare you to try. Now, if you get some chemically infused compost full of, like, freaking 2,4-D or something, maybe. Okay, but... If you get a good quality compost and throw an inch of it, if you if you if you had that much money and or that small of a lawn, you put an inch of compost on your lawn, it is not going to kill your grass. If you put two inches of it, unless you then roll it with a roller every day and keep it compacted as possible, it's not going to kill your grass. Your grass is going to grow right up through it. Period. And it will improve the drainage, the tilth, everything of your soil. It sounds to me like your soil is fairly compacted. And I would look at possibly aerating your soil. There's different tools you can do that with. But one uh, way you can do that is to take um, these things that are just basically, you put them on your feet and you walk around with spikes on your, uh, on your feet to do this. But I would say something like, Depending on how much time you got and how big this lawn is, something like a broad fork would be pretty good. So a broad fork is uh, kind of looks like a pitchfork, but it's bigger and beefier, and they're used by a lot of agriculturists and gardeners and home gardeners and market gardeners, and basically has two handles, and you step it into the ground and you rock it back to loosen the soil. So that would be something you could... And then there are... Uh, like mechanical lawn aerators, like machines that do this. You can look at maybe renting one of those. And I think you only ever have to do that once. And if you can aerate and then add compost and a good drenching of something like a Garrett juice product along with something to feed the microbes like dry molasses or a liquid molasses drench um, and then follow kind of Paul Wheaton's advice on going, you, you, your lawn will explode. It really will. And once you get deep roots, your soil compaction problems go away. Your grass is 
unhappy. Your lawn is unhappy because its roots are shallow because it's compacted, but it's compacted because its roots are shallow. You also might consider adding some some herbs and broad leaves and things like that to your lawn and not like I don't think it, I think if you want your your grass to be like all Kentucky bluegrass or all Raleigh St. Augustine or all these are all southern varieties cuz I don't really know what you guys grow up there but fescue or whatever it's going to be hard because you're trying to monocrop a lawn if you're okay with some plantain in your lawn find some plantain and throw seed there uh, I would definitely add like especially in Ohio Clover is going to do great. So like a Dutch white clover or New Zealand white clover or both. Throw some daikon in the yard. There's a couple handfuls here and there and let a few of them grow and get that, that deep root down into the hard pan because they're an annual. So just kind of mow around them when you mow for a while and you'll have these little clumps of grass and your neighbors will bitch and all. But, you know, just let them do that for like, a, you know, a month or two until they get really big and then go ahead and mow them. And then they'll die off in the ground. Like those are some other strategies that you can employ. Um, you basically want a meadow, not a lawn. And everywhere that I've ever lived, the only thing I ever I ever really did for my lawn was I didn't do anything other than mow it when I had to, and I mowed it high. That I mean, that's your number one thing that you can do right there, and it's it's not really asking very much. Um, Really, in the summer especially, you have to think about this. The difference between grass being an inch high and four inches high on the surface temperature of the soil is going to be about 25 to 30 degrees of difference. One inch grass, it's almost like it's not there. The sun is going to beat onto the soil below the grass. And what is that going to do to the soil? It's going to dry it out. And what happens when you, and it's probably got clay in it. So what happens when you bake clay? It gets hard, right? There's your problem. That's your biggest thing you can do. Um, next up, um, Richard sent me a thing, and it's it's a, a link to an article in the India Times about the guy who built the original World Wide Web is not happy with the way things are going as far as liberty and freedom and privacy. So he's just going to build himself another one for you to use. That gentleman is Tim Brenners Lee. Let me read you a little bit of this article and uh, just so you can get kind of a feel for where this is going. Unless you've been living under a rock, you know that Tim Brenners Lee is pretty important dude in the technology world. He's the father of the Internet, responsible for the birth of the World Wide Web as we know it. And he hates what it's become, so he's taking some action to fix it. You see, for years now, Brenner's Lee has expressed his distaste for how major corporations have taken what was supposed to be a free environment and placed restrictions on it. He doesn't like how groups like Facebook, Google, and Amazon have effectively centralized the Internet, nor how they control people's data. So he's instead working on a new platform and a startup that's declaring war on big tech. Interrupt is a startup that Brenner's Lee has been working on in stealth for about nine months. He's even taken a sabbatical from his prestigious position teaching at MIT uh, Labs in order to work full-time. And Interrupt will finally launch to the world this week. Brenners Lee told Fast Company in an exclusive interview, quote, The intent is world domination, he says. Interrupt is built on a solid platform, something he and others at MIT have been working on for years Solid is basically designed to be like the early days of the Internet, wild and free, and Interrupt will be the way to access it, at least from the start. 
And in demonstration for the PC, he pulled up what looked like a very basic browser page, completely bare bones, part of an app built for his personal use. It displays his calendar, address book, chats, his, uh, his music, etc. It's like you combine Google Drive with WhatsApp, Spotify, and pretty much every piece of cloud storage uh, and online connectivity you use all in one place. The difference is... The difference here is that all the information is under his control, taking back the Internet. The basic idea is that each user is assigned a solid ID and solid pod when they first come online on the platform. That can be hosted any, that'd be hosted wherever you want. Pod here stands for personal data store, which is what it does. Instead of apps like Google Drive where your data is stored on the primary company's server and therefore subject to their data harvesting, on solid, however, all your data exists in your solid pod, When an app requests access, Solid will authenticate, and then you can choose to give it access to your pod. Using Solid is how Brenner's Lee believes people can escape the data monopoly he feels companies like Google and Facebook are trying to create. Internet, then, is just a way for developers to build their own apps for the platform. And just like he did with the Internet, Brenner's Lee has no plans to make a huge profit. Instead, he's making the platform open source and plans a tour across the globe over the next few months tutoring developers on how to build their own centralized, decentralized apps using Interrupt. Okay, so you want to read the rest of the article. There's not much more to it. You can do so. I have a link in the show notes. But basically, what you're ending up with is sort of a combination of personal hosting and browser, and device freedom to where you almost are creating your own Internet window, I guess would be a way to look at this. It's one of those things that I think that we're going to have to start using and it's going to have to be developed more to where it becomes something the average person can use because what made the Internet explode really was when you didn't have to know much. All you had to do was you got a computer and, you know, Internet Explorer was on it. There was an E on it. And you clicked E and it opened up and then you could go to websites. Like at the time, like Yahoo and Alta Vista, right? And Ask Jeeves. And you typed in shit and you found shit and you went and looked at stuff. And so I think this is going to take a little bit of knowledge to configure for yourself. But I think this is one of many ways that are being innovated right now to kind of change things for the better and put freedom back in the hands of individuals because you're going to decentralize hosting in a way would be one way to look at it. So you would be able to connect with TSP and have our content go into your pod. And I think that the natural evolution of that is load sharing of pods like you had with file sharing. I think that would be something that, unless it's built, because I don't know that much about this yet, this particular solution. There's lots of solutions being implemented. Lots of solutions are being implemented. Because I think the next thing we're going to have to really contend with is ISPs blocking sites. ISPs and browsers block. That's why I said get off of Firefox, get off of Chrome, get onto something like Brave, Because that's going to be next, is you're just going to like not be able to access a site, and it's going to be your browser doing it. Well, the next thing we have to worry about is ISPs and carriers doing the same thing. So, you know, you're, 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 you, know you find a way to get a phone that will work on AT&T's network that's a data, you know, to use their data plan or whatever. And so then you'll go to the survivalpodcast.com and it'll say basically, like, website not found because a lie, that, or we're blocking this because Jack Spirico is a freaking asshole. 
or something like that. Um, and so even though you now have your independence, they'll, or they'll block the ability of the app. So let's say if Gab comes out with the Gab phone that they talked about, and now you can install the Gab app on the Gab phone or the TSP app on the Gab phone or the MeWe app on the Gab phone if they eventually ban MeWe or whatever. So now I've, I've won. I've, I, I am invincible from uh, GoldenEye, right? Boris, right? I am invincible. And then AT&T just says, well, we're not going to allow that app to access data through our network. That's definitely possible. It would be pretty ugly if they did that, I think, for them. Um, but it's something that we may have to deal with next. But if we start creating this kind of completely decentralized component to it, you're not accessing TSP. You're accessing your pod type of thinking is, is one way to look at it there. The other thing I want you to know that I and my, my new web guy, who's been amazing at helping me get the site upgraded on a new server, clean up some hacks that we had and stuff like that, We're looking at actually hosting TSP as a shadow thing, so not, it's not shadow like Haydn, but actually so that you can access the, the Survival Podcast using Tor, but without coming out the other side of Tor, which I fully don't 100% understand yet, but I get the gist of it. That So we'll basically have a secondary domain that will be on a dot .onion, right? So it will be on the dark web, which means like, where you can get to it even if they decide to start blocking it. That's what that means. So, with that, let's go on to the next one. Just right off of this thinking is what, a part of why I want you to join me on Odyssey if you have not done so already. So, if you go to the show notes today, you'll find a link that says join me on Odyssey. If you, if you get my email, uh, every day, there's always a link in the sub, in the, in the signature line about joining me on Odyssey. And I put that link there because I, honest, I get, I get like, I don't know, 25 cents in library credits or something if you click my link when you join versus not click my link. So that's why I want you to use my link. But I, I, I want you to join me on Odyssey, specifically if you're a content creator, uh, even more than just if you're just a follower. Because I'm telling you, the deplatforming has only just begun. It, it really has. There's more and more deplatforming happening every day. And if you have... You know, half a dozen videos on YouTube, I guess it's not that big a deal if they shut you down for some reason. And if you have half a dozen videos, they probably, I'm not going to say definitely, but probably aren't going to. But if you've built up a YouTube channel over the years and you have hundreds of videos on there, imagine that one day you check your channel, even if it doesn't make you launch a bunch of money or something, clearly you valued that content or you wouldn't put it there. And it's just gone. Because somebody somewhere got their ass, you know, got pain in their ass, a little butthole hurt because, oh my God, they said something I don't like. And it might not even have anything to do with your YouTube channel. It might be that you said something somewhere else that somebody found and they, oh my God, this is horrible. And it just happens to get tweeted or face farted the right way. And then all the social justice warriors scream and yell, no, oh, this is horrible. And, and YouTube takes you down. Don't think it can't happen because it's happened to people. Right, And all of that content's lost. Or you could go to odyssey.com, set up an account, and import your entire YouTube library in minutes. And then it will live forever. And this is something that I've been saying about this purging of social media that I think I really, really, really need you to understand. The most beautiful thing about what we're doing with social media, content creation, articles, etc. today 
is that when you're dead, your grandkids or your great-grandkids or maybe your great-grandkids someday will be like, what did Bill, what did great-grandpa Bill really think about the shit that was going on during COVID that maybe we're still dealing with some crap from? And what was the real story about it? They can look up your stuff and you can tell them the truth about 2020 when they're kicking around in the year like, I don't know, what do you think? 2100? It should still be there. How's it going to be there if it's taken down because somebody just didn't like what you said? So if you're a creator, you may not even realize the value of your creation. And it might be incredibly valuable from a standpoint of because it's the truth, or it might just be that someday there's this little kid that wonders where they came from and who their, who their ancestors are. And I'll just ask you today, if right now, let's say your name is Bill Smith, and you were named after your great-grandfather, Bill Smith, and you could go and you could type Bill Smith into DuckDuckGo and run a search, and you could find videos of your great-grandfather talking about anything, his garden, the things he likes, the thing he hates, the car he wanted to buy when he was a little kid, or the first girlfriend he ever had, or whatever it is, or his commentary on news. It doesn't matter, right? You don't give a shit. How much would that mean to you that you could go look that up when they censor your speech, they're denying your ability to speak to people who will refer to you as an ancestor? It's that freaking evil. It's that I know some of you don't like this word. It's that fucking wrong. It's that fucking wrong. For fuck's sake, understand that. They're denying you the right to leave your fucking legacy behind, and it's bullshit. I'm sorry if you don't like the word, but it is. They're denying you. I read a letter here today from a child to his father. Maybe that child's grandson someday would like to hear that. And I guarantee you, as long as the, as long as the content is not taken away, somebody will develop the search capability to be that specific and to find it by then. But if you let them decide what can and can't stay. And I've been saying this for years. But think about some of the things you've seen them do this year. And this year is 12 days old. And if I said they would do this, and I said that in 2015, you would have said I was smoking crack crazy. What will they do in 10 more? For the love of God, if you're a creator... Start using these blockchain-based services because as long as there's computers, what you leave behind will be there to be heard and to be seen. And never underestimate what's being done. You're not just being silenced at this time. You're being silenced in the future. And they've always said that the victors write history, and it was always true until now. Why do you think they're doing it? Why 
do you think they're doing it? Because they don't like the fact that they don't just get to decide what history is anymore. You're making history. You are history. I'm guaranteeing you, if you knew what your grandparents knew, you wouldn't believe half of what you've been told about the world as it used to be. And they want to make sure that your great-grandchildren have the same information deficit. And I, for one, am not letting it fucking happen. All right. So please join me on Odyssey. And don't say it's all political, because it's not. Here's what I've added to Odyssey in the past two days. One I just added this morning. This one's like uh, from, like, I think it's from Madagascar or something like that. Um, building an aquaponics system with water bottles and bamboos. you got to read the subtitles on this one, but it's totally worth it. Um, I have an old, old video from 2013 called An Experiment in Backyard Sustainability that was part of the Peak Moment show that's been off the air for three or four years now. I have Redesigning Civilization with Permaculture with Toby Hemingway. And I totally want you to watch that one. It's about an hour long. And the first half hour is the gloom and doom part, and it's the most important part, and it explains to you the story of your domestication and why you allow any of this stuff to happen. You'll also look at it and you'll go, man, how horrible is what we've done really? How bad is it? And why did we do this? And you'll understand that it doesn't have to be. And it will, the second half will give you all kinds of great solutions. And then Jeff Lawton's video from about six years ago, Surviving Collapse, Designing Your Way to Abundance. That's what I've added to my channel in the last two days. See, what I'm doing is not only has all my old content come over, and not as only all my new content going on there, I'm finding all this stuff, specifically stuff that I think would be valuable to you, and that I fear somebody someday will say, we don't need that around anymore. And I'm putting it where... Maybe not just my grandkids and great-grandkids can see it. But maybe Toby Hemingway's great-great-grandkids. That man was a friend, but he was also a great leader in the permaculture movement. And the fact, when I listened to that presentation, I thought about how dangerous his words were to the establishment. And I thought, you know what? Again, here's that word you don't like some of you. Fuck no. You ain't taking it down. Because I'm going to put it over here where you can't. That's the battle we're in. Please understand that. This is open warfare. But we have better weapons if we will freaking use them, guys. Join me on Odyssey. Join me on these alternative platforms as a whole. Next up, uh, Andrew sent me. I'll go quick on this one so we don't go too long today. What is your quote on pistols versus rifles? Again, you haven't said it in a while. I thought it was something like a pistol is only best when a rifle's impractical, something like that. But I don't think that's exactly it. That's close enough. That's a, basically my opinion of pistols is pistols are for when rifles are impractical. So it's not my word is best. It's just that's it. Like a pistol is for when a rifle is impractical. And I consider right when I say rifle, I mean long guns. Shotguns and rifles end fights. Pistols sometimes end fights. And sometimes you shoot a person multiple times with a pistol, and they don't end fights. person says, ow, runs away, don't do that to me anymore, and then shoots back at you or keeps doing whatever they're doing. And I'm not going to say that every time you shoot somebody with a rifle, they stop, and every time you shoot somebody with a pistol, they don't. 
I'm going to say by the numbers, and I've, I've looked at studies on the data, if you get shot with a rifle or a shotgun anywhere in the torso, neck, or head, your odds of one-stop shot are very, very high. And when you look at the numbers with a pistol, they're nowhere near close. But we can't always walk around with a rifle. And even if it was totally legal and no one had a problem with you walking around with an AR-15 on your back, if you were ever a soldier and had to walk around with your M16 if you're old like me or M4 if you're younger on your back nonstop for several days, it gets old. It's not really fun. It's not practical. If you're going to, to your door and you're not really sure about who's on the other side of it, but it could be a friendly answering the door with a rifle in your hand, and that's also a point where the rifle itself becomes a liability because it's easier for somebody to grab and control, and it's easier to conceal a pistol and only pull it out unless you know you need it. That would be another example of when, yeah, you can have a rifle in your home, but you're probably not sitting in your lawn, your, your, your easy chair, your lazy boy, with your AR-15 in your lap, unless you just happen to bring it out for a little bit of AR-15 love. Because we all, all our gun owners, they have kind of bring it out like a pet and kind of play with it a little bit and pet it, make it feel loved. Unless you happen to be doing that, right, it's probably put away. But when it comes down to it, if you're expecting conflict, you don't want a pistol. A pistol's a good backup weapon in that situation. And it's because rifles and fights. So... The gunfighting, you know, training world uses the phrase, you use your pistol to fight your way back to your rifle. And I guess with all of the kind of end of the world as we know it, you know, zombie apocalypse visions that people have, they take that literally, like, that's so I can get home and get my battle rifle and my battle rattle and go out and fight the Red Dawn War. That's not what they mean. They literally mean what I just said. That the pistol is suboptimal, but at times it's the only thing that's practical. Next up, I got a question from Gary. Gary says, I'm trying to find out the best way to create a sustainable yeast for mead making. Do you just buy some dry yeast and then make a starter and just keep a jar of yeast fed so it replicates and is sustainable? Not sure if it's that simple. Just thinking if yeast for brewing becomes unavailable, I'd like to be able to have my own. Thanks, Gary. The best way to do this is... To simply, when you finish a batch of mead or beer or anything, and you, you do what's called rack off that yeast layer, just pitch your next, next layer on top of that layer, and it'll go again. And you can do that for a while, but then you start to build up a huge sediment layer of yeast. So you can, you can pour some of that off into another fermentation container. And then it'll create another layer that you can pour off into another... And you can just keep doing that. In time, that particular strain of yeast will mutate a little bit and it will get some other microbes involved with it. Maybe it'll hybridize with some wild yeasts, right? But you don't really need to like keep a jar well-fed. You'll find that if you have a jar of slurry... That it's going to work for a long time without being fed. That yeast in a refrigerator will go dormant, not necessarily die. Um, if, you, if you just think back to the way our ancestors made mead, they used wild yeast, but it didn't take them long to figure out, hey, this shit in the bottom, if you use some of that in the next batch, it goes a hell of a lot quicker. right? So they started doing that. And this 
entire idea that we have this perfect laboratory strain of yeast that we know exactly which species and variety of yeast it is, is a very new idea in the world of brewing and venting and cider making and mead making and all of that other stuff. So you could definitely do it. My caveat of that is I have used, when you talk about a dry yeast, like uh, Pasteur Blanc or something that I use, or Cuvée, the two yeasts that I use mostly in my mead making, I've used packets of that shit that's three years old, and people are like, it's, you should use fresh yeast. I agree you should. I've never, ever had a packet of that where I've used it in my mead making or wine making or cider making, and it didn't work. Not yet. Not saying it doesn't happen. So you can always keep some extra in reserve. So you can start repitching, but always keep some packets, and every once in a while, use a new packet. That would be one way to do it. The other thing you can do is, let's say, the shit hits the fan. And this is why I'm saying that yeast doesn't generally just die. It goes dormant. So the shit has hit the fan. You've got a bottle of your mead, and you've accepted that the shit has hit the fan, so you're going to sit down with your family and have some mead. So you have your mead. You leave a little bit of mead in the bottom. You take some fresh sugar and nutrient, back pitch to that bottle, fill it up three quarters of the way, put an airlock on it. That's a smaller bottle, like, you know, a 16-ounce swing top or something. And it'll start fermenting. And then pitch that to your next batch of mead. You can cultivate yeast out of any bottle that was fermented that didn't have the yeast killed. If you've killed the yeast with, like, potassium sorbates or heat or whatever... Like then that's not going to work. But if the meat just if if the yeast just went dormant, if that bottle has a thin layer of yeast sediment on the bottom, you can cultivate it. I you can and I have cultivated the yeast out of Chimay, for instance. So if you have a bottle conditioned non pasteurized beer or wine or anything like that that you buy in a store that has a sediment layer at the bottom, in fact before uh, Y yeast labs or whatever it's called before they started making that yeast strain, the only way you could duplicate it was to cultivate it from a bottle. And that's the beer that got me making beer in the first place, Gary. Um, back when I was broke, a buddy of mine I worked with took me out to this bar. He made a lot more, he's kind of a mentor to me, he made a lot more money than me, and he ordered a bottle of Chimay. And when he ordered a Chimay, the lady like bristled like, you, 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 you do know that that bottle was $12. This is a bar, right? So like, that's a little bit elevated, but I think a bottle like the time in a, in a liquor store was like seven bucks. And I'm old, so a six-pack of like Miller Genuine Draft back then was like seven bucks or less. right? So you're paying as much for a bottle as you could buy a six-pack for. Um, sometimes beer would be on sale, you could get a case for like $12. And I'm not talking like Natty Light, I'm talking like you know main brand. So I he ordered this Chimay, and I'm like, that's great. And uh, I was like, man, I can't afford it. He's like, yeah, you don't drink it every day. But he was a home brewer, and he had a bunch of extra gear, and he gave it all to me along with a copy of Charlie Papazian's New Complete Joy of Home Brewing, or the Complete Joy of Home Brewing, the original one, all dog-eared and marked up. And uh, that started my whole career as a brewer. And so I was making yeast just that way. So if you have mead... Whatever, unless you did something, again, like sorbates or something to kill it, all you have is generally you have dormant yeast and you can recultivate it right out of the bottle. And that's kind of always your, your, your last resort. Then lastly, 
the most sustainable thing you can do is open fermentation. And so that's what our ancestors did for thousands of years. And so you might want to look into like the books by Sandor Katz, more on wild fermentation. In fact, the book's called Wild Fermentation. With that, we've wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. And uh, I want to just say uh, thank you to everybody who reached out yesterday and gave me words of encouragement after uh, after that show, because that was a hard show to do. I uh, I really don't like the place that we're headed, but I, I know fundamentally that we have options. We have ways that we can fight back. Uh, with that, if you like this show and you support what we do, you can always help us out by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. I've got a new item of the day for you today. I've never covered this before. It's made by a company called Dejo, D-E-E-J-O, and it's it's being marketed as a gentleman's knife. And now you're thinking, Dejo, that must be like some Chai Com thing or nothing. No, they're made in France. Um, if you show me a knife like this made in America, I'll buy it. Uh, if I see anything like this that's similar to it and as good or better, I, I would probably buy one. I'm a guy that likes to own knives. This thing is amazing. It's the, the, the model is a 27G, and then it comes in different uh, handle materials and things like that. Uh, the one I got, 27G, it, is, it seems small, but it is a substantial blade. 27G is also the weight. It's 27 grams, the whole weight of this thing. And 27 grams is light, guys. It it feels like it's not even in your hand. It opens like butter, and it's like for... I, I put it this way in the right of it. It's like for shiving someone with style. The, the, it, it's built a lot in the blade form, similar in some ways to a stiletto blade, though it's only an edge on one side. And I got one that's like a straight edge and a serrated edge, like half and half. The handle, you're going to have to go look at this. I, I can't explain this life in audio format, but I can tell you when I took it out of the box that it came in and put it in my hand, I was like, wow, I couldn't believe how light it was. And when I opened it, I was like, ooh. We've all had that experience where you open you know, like a one-hand opening on a knife, and you know generally they work pretty well or you wouldn't buy it in the first place. But there's sometimes you open when you're like, oh, wow, yeah. That's how that is. And... It looks a little non-ergonomic, but when you actually hold on to it, and I have a video explaining all this, it is a wonderfully crafted tool. It's a great EDC knife. I would not use this as a heavy working knife. My 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 buddy uh, David said that it. He, so I, when I saw this, I'm like, David would love this, right? So I texted him, I'm like, check these out. I'm gonna get one. I figured you'd like him. He's like, I got one of those years ago. He says, my church knife. It's for going to church, you know, or in, in, in case you have to, you know, stylishly shiv somebody. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a great description. They also make a 17G, which is a little smaller. It's about half the size of it. And I didn't really want one of those. I may get one now, just unless I can find a store I can go hold one because I, I want to hold one. Because I'm surprised at how substantial this knife is for how small it seems. And uh, those may be a great little knife as well. But go ahead and check it out. Check my write-up. And remember, you can always help support the show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. The other thing you can do is become a member of the MSB. You do that, you get discounts, you get some extra content, and you know you're supporting the show that you love at about 18 cents an episode. With that, let's talk about our song of the day. Uh, we are in Highwaymen Week. We are listening to the Highwaymen all week. And this song is called Live Forever. And this is another song that's very much about kind of the immortality of being a legend. It has definitely kind of a southern gospel feel to it, and I guess you could take it to be, you know, living that eternal life as spirit and soul uh, in the afterworld. But 
And I think there might be some of that in it, but it's not really what I get out of the song. I get more... Um, when I read a, uh, if I read the chorus to you here, nobody here will ever find me, but I will always be around. Just like the songs I leave behind me, I'm going to live forever now. So I, to me, that is more about the legacy that you leave behind, your legacy. And we are all legends to somebody. That's what I've been talking about so far a lot this week with what's being done with purging what you have to say deleting accounts, deleting opinions. Because these opinions that seem so unimportant now, probably the opinions that seem the least important, probably the ones that are not why you're being, this is being done to people. What would you want to know from your grandfather or your great-grandfather that you don't know? What words would you want to hear? Maybe his opinion on what the best apple tree plant was. Who knows? We are all legends to somebody. And that's why I think it's important to leave a legacy behind. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. I'm going to live forever. I'm going to cross that river. I'm going to catch tomorrow now. You're going to want to hold me just like I always told you. You're gonna miss me when I'm gone Nobody here will ever find me But I will always be around Just like the songs I leave behind me I'm gonna live forever now And you mothers, be good to one another. Please try to raise your children right. Don't let the darkness take them. Don't make them feel forsaken. Just lead them safely to the light. When this old world is blown asunder and all the stars fall from the sky, remember someone really loves you. We'll live forever, you and I I'm gonna live forever I'm gonna cross that river I'm gonna catch tomorrow now I'm gonna live forever I'm gonna cross that river I'm gonna catch tomorrow now I'm gonna catch